Today, we're going to talk about a fundamental concept in complex systems, the concept of information. Now, when most of us think of information, we think of it as something that we can know. It's something we can go and read in a book or watch on TV, and we can take that information and we can put it inside our heads. But what happens if information is so much more than that? Well, today we're joined by Sarah Walker, Deputy Director of the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science, Associate Professor in Earth and Space Exploration and Complex Adaptive Systems at Arizona State University, and external faculty of the Santa Fe Institute. Today, Sarah is going to examine information and the role it plays in complex systems. And she's also going to talk about how an understanding of information helps us try and answer one of the biggest questions in the universe. What's the difference between something that's not living and something that's alive? This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Sarah Walker, welcome on the show. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. So we're going to talk about information, which is a really important part of complex systems. You're going to start with a Sherlock Holmes story. So there is a story about Sherlock Holmes called Silver Blaze. It's one of the many mysteries he solves, which is about a missing racehorse. And I think it's a good example for thinking about information because a key element of that story is this part where Sherlock Holmes is able to solve the mystery of who stole the missing racehorse by a clue of a dog that didn't bark. So there's this sort of thing about non-barking dogs or dogs that don't bark actually convey information. And so Sherlock actually figured it out because he used that as a clue to figure out that it must be someone that the dog knew and that's why he didn't bark. And then that narrowed down the options to actually discover who stole the horse. And so that particular story has a few features associated with the kind of information that we're talking about, this fact that the dog didn't bark that really provide a microcosm of a lot of the discussion and the debate around the concept of information in complex systems that I think are good to unpack. And there's three things particularly you want to talk about. What's the first one? List of three that I think um, it really illustrates are one is this idea of reduction in uncertainty. So this is sort of the standard concept of information that most people come across in complex systems. It comes from the work of Claude Shannon in the mid-1900s in the seminal work that he did on information theory. So he's really considered the father of modern information theory. If you have a piece of information, it should reduce your uncertainty in the possible outcomes or guesses you might have about this situation. So in this case, there might have been many perpetrators. I don't remember how many <laughs> Sherlock was considering in the story at the time, but when he got the bit of information about the dog not barking, he was able to narrow it down just to the people that the dog must know. So that reduced the option space. And so this reduced his uncertainty in what was actually happening. And so that's sort of the concept of information that Shannon came up with. And there's ways of formalizing that that we talk about in complex systems theory and use quite a lot. The second concept that I think is really important, which is kind of a more natural concept of information, is that it has to be something I can communicate between you and I. 
for example, and it means something. So the actual discussion in the story about the dog not barking was between Sherlock Holmes and the gentleman at Scotland Yard that was pointing out that the dog didn't bark was kind of curious. And so they actually shared this information between the two of them, and it meant the same thing to the two of them. So it wasn't just arbitrary bits of information, but it carried meaning with it. And that meaning was actually something that could be copied from the Scotland Yard gentleman to Sherlock Holmes in terms of some communication channel. Or for example, I'm telling you now, and it's traveling over a computer. And if any of our audience are feverishly writing notes, they might write dog didn't bark and be able to write it on a piece of paper and it carries the same meaning. So this ability of information to be copied between different systems is really important and retain its meaning. And the third property, which I think is the most interesting about this particular example, is that it really shows this, the counterfactual nature of information. Something that didn't happen, the dog did not bark, actually is causal in this instance. It actually led Sherlock Holmes to make a decision about what did happen. So this is sort of one of the most mysterious properties of information, particularly when you come to trying to understand information and its role in living systems from the perspective of physics, because in physics, things that don't happen don't happen. <laughs> And they don't have any causal role in what does happen. But here we see a clear example of where this sort of property that is abstract seems to hop between these different systems, like a sentence, the dog didn't bark, but then somehow it points to something that didn't happen and it can still cause other things to happen. So those are the three key features. The first one being reduction in uncertainty. The second, that it's copyable and retains meaning. And the third being that it could be counterfactual or there's a counterfactual set of possibilities. And some of them may or may not themselves be realized, but somehow still can cause things to happen. When I first came across this concept of information in complex systems, I still find it difficult to get my head around. I think if you're a listener and you're into science, the concept of energy is really easy about it being neither created nor destroyed and it can change forms and it can do all those sorts of things. In complex systems, Sarah, we sort of think of information in that way. It's different than just information. Can you talk us through that a little bit? Energy and information are kind of similar in the sense that they're both abstract properties. And what I mean by that is a sense that energy can flow between materials. Energy can flow from hot source to a cold source. And therefore we get like an increase in entropy and we lose the ability to do work. We can eat food and attain its energy. <laughs> information also has the ability to kind of flow between different physical systems in the sense that I was just talking about that we can communicate and the information can move from me to you and kind of have similar properties. So in that sense, information and energy are kind of similar. And so people want to talk about the relationship between those. And that actually even shows up in the Shannon formulation of information, which was this reduction in uncertainty. That also actually looks a lot like the formula for entropy. And in fact, it's often called Shannon entropy when we talk about Shannon information because it has the same P log P form, basically the same formulation for the equation. Um, and when we talk about entropy, we're actually also in some sense talking about our uncertainty because a maximum entropy situation, like if I just looked at a gas in a room, it would mean I had absolute uncertainty of the exact location of or maximal uncertainty of the location of the particles. So there is some concept where entropy and information are inversely related, which seems to suggest that energy and information might be related. Like you have to do work to create information. And so there's a whole field of non-equilibrium statistical physics that works on that sort of relationship. But I think information also has some properties that are not 
directly encapsulated or related to what we talk about when we talk about energy. And those have more to do with this third property I talked about, the counterfactual property, which has to do with information being related to causation. And that one is actually much more challenging and where the concept of information actually starts to become more challenging, but also much more relevant to complex system science, because in complex systems, we don't have linear causes for events. We have a very complex web of things are happening, and it's very hard to say this thing caused that thing. And instead, it's just a multitude of things happening all at once. The concept of information flows in complex systems and using them to understand the organization of complex systems becomes much more important than in simple physical analogs. And it seems to be that there are some properties that really decouple just from an energy-based narrative. And have you got a really good practical example of that, Sarah, the concept of information and causation? Yeah, it's hard to pin that down, but I think we could just do an experiment right now, which is we're communicating with information right now. So you and I are not in the same physical room. I can't make direct physical contact with you. So actually the only contact I'm making with you is by transmission of information. And so maybe I can ask you, can you clap your hands? There you go. (laughs) Okay. So clearly it takes energy and work for you to clap your hands. And so it's a necessary condition for you to be able to perform that action, but it's not a sufficient condition to explain why that action happened at that moment in time. It would say if you actually wanted to talk about the causation for the particular event of you clapping your hands, it would have to include the fact that information was moved from me to you. And the way we talk about that right now actually seems very uh, non-physical, but this is where I think a complex systems perspective really can come in handy and where maybe some new physics associated with information might eventually explain the complex systems we call life, which is most of my work. Because part of the reason that you and I can communicate this information right now is actually because we're not independent objects. We're part of the same complex system or members of the same society. We speak the same language. We, in fact, Part of the reason that we can be part of the same social networks and the same sets of dynamical systems is because we share a common history. And so for me, when you see information actually being able to do things, it's evidence of a common history between those objects, that they actually have to have sort of a common language or a common meaning for particular features in order for information to even be established as a physical concept. So it seems to already indicate something about the structure of complex systems, that their structure is not something that you can just look at instantaneously, but they have, as I said already, these sort of tangled webs of causation that actually influence what happens in the particular event you're watching. But you actually have to look at that across time in order to understand. So in order to understand the causation of you clapping, you actually have to look at the whole history that led to you and I sitting in this particular room. And that history involves also the evolution of language and the fact that you and I speak the same language. Evolution is really the encoding of information and that we can do what we can do and what we were able to do when we were born because that information had been essentially hardwired into our system. Yes. So I very much actually think of information as a physical property. So the way we've been talking about it so far in this conversation, even especially in the example from the Sherlock Holmes story, is very abstract and it seems very decoupled from the hard objects in physics, like electrons and protons, which are like things we can physically point to, a word seems like not a physical object. The way I like to think about it is there's some things like biologically evolved objects that only come into existence because there's information to specify them. So if you think about even what biological selection is, you think about a space of possibilities 
and certain structures are selected over time to exist, which already has this sort of feature of information that we talked about more abstractly in the Sherlock Holmes example of reduction in uncertainty, which is very sort of anthropocentric when we talk about it that way. But if you think about it, instead of reduction of my uncertainty and you think I've just reduced the possibility space, you can see there's a direct analogy to what selection is doing as a filter. And then what that suggests is that objects, as they become more complex, the things that are evolved in the universe become more complex, they have more and more information associated with them. And a particular theory that I'm working on called assembly theory, which is supposed to explain sort of the causal role of information in the origin of life, actually takes that feature of looking at the ways of building something and the possibility of space excluded as a feature of objects. So information actually becomes a physical feature of the materials that we treat as objects when we get to the world of the complex. And you've got a phrase, the hard problem the, of life. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so that's a, a play for um, people in the audience will be interested in information, probably already know about the hard problem of consciousness, which is this idea that consciousness has lots of scientific challenges associated with explaining it, but there's one sort of standout problem that seems like current approaches to science can't even touch, which is the problem of subjective experience. And this comes up because all of the ways that we interrogate things to prove scientific theories have to do with intervention and external measurement. So how could you possibly know what it's like to be something from the inside if you can't actually measure that feature? And there's also a parallel problem, which is the hard problem of matter, which is that matter itself is actually not defined in the absence of interactions because we never observe an electron in the absence of a measuring device. We always observe an electron under interaction with another object. And so some people have suggested that the sort of parallel between the higher problem of consciousness and the hard problem of matter suggests that matter is actually the software of reality because we're basically talking about the relations between objects. How do they interact when we measure things? An electron has a negative charge, but only when we interact it with a measuring device. What are all the properties of an electron we can't measure because there's no measuring device to interact with that property? And consciousness, because it's intrinsically about what something is just for itself on the inside, might be more the hardware. So it's kind of an inversion of the usual logic. But the point of it, playing with these ideas, is when I was thinking about life and this idea that abstractions seem to be causal, the dog that didn't bark is a very abstract idea. It's not even a physical thing. There was no event that happened, actually causes something to happen, seems to suggest that there's some immaterial property causally influencing physical reality, which I don't think is true, but it suggests that there's a hard problem because we need to explain that feature if we're going to explain what life is. And so all of these problems, the hard problem of consciousness, the hard problem of matter, and the hard problem of information, I think, intersect in really interesting ways. Hard problem of consciousness is what is an object in the absence or what is the problem of experience? Hard problem of matter is what is an object in the absence of interactions? And the hard problem of life is how is it that abstract properties can actually influence what happens? And so they all seem to talk about sort of different layers of what information is and how we talk about it from very different perspectives. But the one I'm particularly interested in, because I think it's really important for understanding the nature of life, is what is information? How does it emerge? And why does it look like it seems to determine features of the future? And how can we think about that in a more materialistic or physical way? 
you want to talk some more about where, where you got to on that? I mean, that's... Yeah. So when I was originally writing about that problem um, with Paul Davies, so the essay you're referring to is one I wrote with my long-term mentor and friend, Paul Davies, who is an excellent intellect on all of these kind of topics. So he's been a wonderful mentor. I was really thinking about traditional physics and this idea that if information was causal, then something called top-down causation had to happen. So top-down causation. So usually when we think about systems, we think about levels of organization or levels or scales of looking at physical systems. So there's supposed to be like a bottom in current descriptions of physics. There's a bottom of reality, which is like elementary particles, and they're described by deterministic equations. So we think the universe in some sense should be causally closed if we buy that description, because everything that happens at the elementary particle level should determine when I start gripping those particles together, what's happening. If I had enough computational power to describe a cell at the level of elementary particles, I should be able to do it. There's no new physics, no new principles emerging. But we seem to have these things that are like thoughts <laughs> that seem to intervene on the world and thoughts are not, they're an emergent property. They're not a property of elementary particles. So this introduces some paradoxes and the idea that these sort of higher level structures of thought is an emergent property of a brain, which is billions of neurons, which are all cellular structures that are composed of millions of molecules and the molecules themselves are proposed of you know, billions of atoms. I don't know exactly how many atoms are in a human body, but you're getting the idea. <laughs> Where does the thought come from? And if it's not all reduced to the properties of those atoms or elementary particles, how is it calling the shots? How is it determining anything? And so some people will just sort of take the perspective of the hardcore reductionist approach and just say, it's just that we can't explain all of those levels because we just, as I said, don't have the models or the computational power to do it. From my perspective, there's no reason that we need to accept the narrative that works for particle physics or other areas of physics, when we get to the complex world of life and mind, it might be that new physical principles emerge in those systems. And so I was using top-down causation to kind of bridge that gap and use it as a lens into where the difficulties were with trying to understand that information looks like it does things in life and mind, but it doesn't look like it does these things in standard physics. And that pointed out a lot of gaps to me in that structure. And Long story short, where I landed with thinking about that, this is in this new theory that I mentioned briefly, which is assembly theory that I'm working on with Lee Cronin at the University of Glasgow and also with folks at Santa Fe Institute, which is proposing this idea that molecules as complex objects, we shouldn't look at them as hard point objects like we do elementary particles, but instead we should look at the object itself from a different kind of material perspective. So we shouldn't look at like physical stuff in the way we do in standard physics, but we should look at physical stuff in terms of the operations necessary to build the thing. So if you think about a molecule, a molecule is an object that you can decompose into atoms, or if you prefer, you can imagine you have a Lego castle. I like to think about Lego Hogwarts because we can all kind of visualize that pretty easily. And you think I just have a whole bunch of bricks on the table. And then you want to build up the object again. So if you're building the molecule, you start joining the atoms together to make bonds and you figure out all the ways that you can do that using pieces you've made before to get to that molecule. Or if you're building Hogwarts, you do the same thing. You put two pieces together, you take pieces you've built already, put them together, and then you get all the way up to Hogwarts. And what we think 
with this theory is that life is the only thing that builds objects above a certain minimal path in that space. Because each time you perform an operation of putting two objects together, you have to make a choice. You're reducing the uncertainty and the possible futures of things you can build. You're adding information because you're basically reducing that possibility space, like how we talked about before, and you're building toward a specific object. And so if you actually observe a specific object with a very large depth, a very large number of operations, and you see it in high abundance, it suggests that there had to be a system that evolved the knowledge to build it, has information specific to producing that object. So objects themselves are evidence that information in their environment exists to assemble them. That's true always. But for some objects, there, it implies there's a whole cascade of other objects that have to exist. So I think of life in some sense as this chain of objects building other objects. You can think of it as a stack of objects. And the deeper into that space you get, the more information is associated with that object, the more complex those objects can be, and the more alive it becomes. And this became a way for us to talk about the non-life, life boundary and chemistry in a way that we can measure in the laboratory because we can measure that shortest path in that space. And just to go back to the Hogwarts analogy, if I was randomly building, I just gave you the pieces and I didn't give you the instructions for making Hogwarts. And maybe you've never seen Hogwarts before. You can just imagine how hard it would be to produce that. I mean, you can like, what are all possible castle-like objects? in Lego or what are all possible objects with the same number of pieces in Lego. That's the possibility space you're excluding when you actually observe Lego Hogwarts. All of these other things were selected out for that thing to exist. And the fact that there are multiple Lego sets across the surface of the planet is evidence of the fact that there are instructions in a booklet somewhere that specify how to build that specific castle. And of course, that booklet itself didn't emerge on its own. That particular castle was built because there was another book of the Hogwarts series that told this great story of this little boy that went on this big adventure and it became a very beloved story. And of course, that story was inspired and why it used castles is because for centuries, humans had been building castles. And there's narratives of the hero's journey that emerged across different cultures. So you can just see how all the information accrued over time to allow Lego Hogwarts to be a specific object that exists in our universe. And basically what we're trying to do with assembly theory is formalize that concept, but make it an intrinsic property that we can measure in objects so we can detect evidence of this feature we usually think of as abstract by making information a physical attribute. So we treat a molecule not as like the three-dimensional molecule structure, but actually as all the ways the universe can build it. And that has all kinds of interesting philosophical implications for reinterpreting concepts of information. But I think this is one of the most interesting things when you get to the world of the complex, is that there are new concepts that need to be invented. They're not things that are part of traditional physics. And that's one of the reasons that I get really excited about working on physics of life and thinking about it from a complexity standpoint. We've thought of molecules before, I've not talked about anything before as just the building blocks to put them together. But you're talking about, you're measuring the complexity or the sophistication of something by looking at the, essentially the number of choices that had to be made to get that thing built, which, and those choices obviously require information to do that. Well, those choices are information. So they require an object that made those choices, that put those constraints, but the choice itself is the information, right? Because it's excluded other possibilities. And the choice is physical. It has to be made physical because if you look 
at the way we build an assembly space, every choice has to be a possible physical operation. So we can't just make arbitrary choices. We can't do alchemy to make molecules. We have to make bonds. So this is why we build up the space with bonds. So basically, you can think of a molecule as all the choices you can make to get to making that molecule with two key features. One is the operation has to be physical. It's making a bond. And the other is you have to use structures that you've already built. So they have to be things the universe has already produced. They have to exist already. So you can't pull things out of the vacuum <laughs> and like out of the ether. They can, they have to exist and you have to be able to make the choice to make that object. You have to have the physics accessible to you. Does this mean you go back to the concept of you know, where a thought comes from in our brain? Are you basically saying that the number of choices that would have to be made in us as a system and in terms of how we evolved and, and where we came from would be so many. And it's that degree of choices you're measuring because it's producing this very sophisticated emergent behavior. Yes. And there's also other interesting implications for the relationship of, well, thinking back about information, like information is always related to something physical because it's physical choices that have to be made. So for molecules, it's making bonds. Another example you can think about is the choices in a behavior. So I'm a physical system. I might display a certain kind of behavior. And each time I turn, it's because I made a choice about which direction I wanted to go. Now, it seems like a kind of weird example to give with me, but imagine I had a bunch of oil droplets in a dish and I also had a bunch of cells in a dish and I was just looking at these things moving around with some kind of lifelike behavior. How would I tell that one was actually the product of evolution and one had no agency and no evolution behind it, but was kind of a spontaneously formed system in responding to Brownian motion. And I think this kind of picture of thinking about physical operations and information as a physical property and also the history dependence of that actually gives new light into this. So one of the ways that I'm trying to apply this theory is actually to being able to tell when you can look at a behavior and actually say, it's the product of living physics. There's a lot of information behind it versus there's no life there or no evolution to get to that behavior. So you're trying to measure life. Yes. That's the end goal here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The main goal is to measure life because if we have a measurement of life, then we can start to talk about the origin of life in a meaningful way, the origin of life transition. We do non-living things transition to living things. And it turns out that the theory, so originally I approached that problem with this top-down causation perspective and everything, thinking the origin of life transition was when information became causal. It's when it attained this extra property that we talked about with the, the example, the counterfactual um, dog that didn't bark before, which is, is the hardest property about information, right? So that seems to be the origin of life transition. But now um, the way I think about it is this sort of inverted perspective where instead of looking at a spatial hierarchy like we described before, where brains are made out of atoms and I just think about that in an instantaneous slice, I have to now think about a brain being assembled from atoms over time and retaining all of those features of every choice made by evolution as actually being an intrinsic property of a brain. And that's why brains have so much information in them. It's because they're these objects that informationally are extended in time. And if you think about that informational feature as physical, and objects have a physical size and time, then you get to some really interesting new frameworks for thinking about the origin of life problem, what life is, how we can think about information as material, why biological evolution looks open-ended, and why information seems to create novelty as a function of time, all these kind of things. So the theory is like super new. We're just in the very early days of it, but I'm really excited because it fills a lot of conceptual gaps for me that I've seen over my entire career about trying to make 
information, a concept we can understand from a physical perspective, that also becomes something that explains the physics of life. And if you had to dream for a moment, what does the end look like? Do you end up with that framework for measuring how much information went into something to build it? I mean, if I was going to be just like most honest with my dream, I would love to have a theory of physics that explains what information is in a way that explains those features of information in this theory of physics, explain what life is and allow us to predict the origin of life transition in a way that we can go test it in the lab and prove the theory. And then the theory has all of these other kinds of ramifications for how we think about what the living universe actually is and the physics of it that would give a radically different picture of the universe we live in than the one standard physics does. So I expect like if this whole research program is successful in the next century, it would be more revolutionary than quantum mechanics was in the last century or Goethe's incompleteness theorem, all these other kinds of insights, because now we're talking about the physical stuff we are as actually being informational in nature and having these other properties that we hadn't realized were real physical features of our universe. We didn't understand those abstractions. And this, of course, gets into this sort of, sort of loop that if you think abstractions are causal, when you generate a new one, <laughs> so I think, you know, like theories of physics are themselves information. So Newton invented a particular law and Newton's law of gravitation 350 years ago or whatever. And now we have satellites. So I can just see like a new abstraction emerging on this planet about what abstractions are. And then like the space that opens up to me is just really incredible. So I guess that's one of the reasons I get so excited about this problem in particular. Information to me is one of the most interesting things. Because for me, it is what we are, but it's not in a simulated, disembodied way. It's in a very physical way that I think is not intuitive for us at a cultural level right now because of the ways we talk about information in this kind of disembodied way, which is one of the reasons people can imagine we live in simulated universes. And I don't know, I think the sort of standard paradigm leads to a lot of misconceptions that become culturally significant. And it would be nice to feel a little bit more about the causation we actually have and what our futures could be. Sarah Walker, thank you very much for being on the show. Sure, that was fun. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode.